Hey, welcome to newsletter number six from Sense of Mind. This is Andrew Cooper Sansone. Today is December 24th, 2021. And this is the weekly video newsletter. So as always, we're going to have a fact about the human brain, a science-based productivity or happiness tip. We are also going to have a quote, um, a book recommendation, and my thoughts about life, culture, or current events. So without further ado, let's just jump into it. And yes, before you ask, this is a, a sticker for um, a cold sore. I get cold sores every now and then. And so that's a, a bonus tip you get on this episode that if you get cold sores, I'll look up what the, uh, the actual brand is, but these stickers that go over them really help them heal and uh, they go away a lot faster. So sorry if that's gross to anybody else, but um, this is uh, you know a biology sort of channel. So anyway, let's just jump into it. Okay, so today's fact is that your body uses your brain to regulate your body. The single most important thing that any biological system does is maintain homeostasis because without it, organisms suffer and die. See, homeostasis is a self-regulating process by which biological systems maintain stability while adjusting to changing external conditions. That's true at the level of cells and molecules where complicated molecular and genetic feedback mechanisms keep the cell operating within the boundaries that keep it alive. For example, temperature, pH, moisture, ionic concentration, energy utilization, etc. And while we usually think of organisms as having evolved to reproduce, that is a secondary goal. The primary goal is survival, which in mechanistic terms means maintaining homeostasis. See, the brain evolved to solve the problem of survival and then secondarily to maximize the chances that its genes reach the next generation. You can't have the second without the first. We often think of the brain as the king of the body, the totalitarian dictator that has power over everything. But the reality is that the brain evolved to serve the body. It's like a central organizer that integrates the systems of the body and allows them to function as a unified whole. When it comes to keeping the body in homeostatic balance, there are a number of important regions, each dedicated to different, although overlapping aspects of homeostasis. For example, the brain's hypothalamus sends and receives signals to and from the body in order to change homeostatic variables. Okay, so for instance, it increases body temperature when it's cold outside. But a different set of brain regions whose function is to sense the homeostatic conditions of the body is called the interoceptive pathway. Interoception is the sense of the physiological conditions of the body. It forms your perception of what your body feels like with regard to homeostasis. So rather than where your body's positioned in space or how it's positioned, it is all about homeostasis. It doesn't include the sense of touch as we usually think of it, though it does overlap with these kind of tactile sensations. The neuroscientist Arthur D. Craig writes that, quote, this pathway originates in sensory fibers that represent the condition of the body for the purpose of homeostasis. 
He explains that the brain uses these fibers, these nerve fibers, to map the homeostatic conditions of the body, primarily in a region of the brain called the insular cortex. Now that makes sense, but he goes on to describe something more profound, that when a physiological sensation is pleasant, your brain reads that as a sign that you are moving closer to a homeostatic optimum. When you feel an unpleasant sensation, it means you're moving further from that optimum. For example, we all know the intrinsic pleasure of quenching our thirst after we've been exercising and sweating all our water out. Water tastes and feels better when you need it. We also know that once we've drank enough water, it ceases to be strongly pleasurable. If we continue to chug bottle after bottle of water, there comes a point when the affective valence flips. That means that drinking becomes painful and water is not at all appealing. In general, this phenomenon is called stimulus-specific satiety. To me, what is most interesting about all this is that the brain uses pleasure and displeasure, which to me seems so subjective and messy, for regulating a set of highly sensitive biochemical problems. While this mechanism is somewhat imprecise, and it can be miscalibrated, as for instance when we desire eating a bowl of unhealthy ice cream because our blood sugar is slightly low, or when we avoid exercise and its benefits because it will cause short-term pain. But it is still an amazingly clever system. It's as if the parts of the brain that determine homeostatic needs must speak in a language that the parts of the brain controlling behavior can understand. That language is found in the subtleties of pleasure and displeasure, or what some scientists have called a common neural currency. Okay, number two in the video newsletter is how to change a habit. So in the book, The Power of Habit, the author Charles Duhigg describes the psychology of habit formation and how to use that knowledge to efficiently change habits. I'm not gonna go too deep into Duhigg's writing, but I'm going to try to boil it down to a simple algorithm that you can employ to break or reprogram old habits. Okay, but before that, let's just make sure we're on the same page about habits. The dictionary defines a habit as a, quote, settled or regular tendency or practice, especially one that is hard to give up. Our brains have specialized circuitry, which is part of the dopaminergic anticipation slash reward system that allows us to establish and maintain habits over time. Okay, it does this by learning to expect a reward of some kind after we've engaged in a particular behavior. That behavior is triggered by some kind of cue. As we engage in the habit over and over again, the behavior becomes more and more automatic and it becomes more and more tightly linked to the cue. So if you really enjoy soda and you have a Coke at lunch at the same time every day, your brain will associate the cue, which is the time on the clock telling you to go to lunch, with the behavior, which is everything you normally do at lunch, including buying and drinking a can of Coke, because the behavior will be linked to the reward, the sweet sensation and possibly the caffeine-induced energy boost. Now, Duhigg explains that if you want to change the habit, you have to reroute your brain's automatic responses, starting with the cue. For example, if you want to get rid of your Coke habit, you should pay attention to when you start craving it. What in your environment cues your desire for a Coke? In our case, it's the clock striking lunchtime at the same time every day, let's say noon. 
Next, you should try to focus on the behavior that's most closely associated with the reward. In this case, it's the buying and drinking of the soda. Finally, ask what the reward is. It may be more or less obvious. Maybe you like the flavor or the sugary sensation or the caffeine. But as Duhigg notes, it may be a social reward, such as the conversation you enjoy with your usual lunch group while you happen to be drinking that Coke. It may be multiple rewards at the same time. For you, let's say it's mainly the caffeine. Once you pin down the cue, behavior, and reward, you can change the habit. For example, say you see the clock strike noon and your stomach begins to growl for a Coke, but you want to switch to a healthier alternative. In this case, you can keep almost everything exactly the same. Go to lunch at the same time, sit with the same people, buy the same meal, except try ordering a sugar-free iced green tea or something like that. You're just replacing one reward with another, very similar one. Now, this probably seems too simplistic to work, and what I've left out is the fact that even though this represents an efficient method of habit change, it is not without a little pain. Your reward system does know the difference between Coke and tea, so you will have to be okay with more or less discomfort. And if it was the caffeine that you wanted to get rid of, rather than just the sugar in the Coca-Cola, you would have to taper off and only very gradually replace it with something else, maybe decaf coffee. Now, that's all to say that behavior change is never easy, but you can make it much easier on yourself by working with rather than against your brain. Okay, by the way, if you wanna learn more about the dopaminergic system and how it establishes habits, check out my videos on dopamine. All right, next up in the video newsletter, number three is a book. This week it is A Thousand Brains, A New Theory of Intelligence by Jeff Hawkins. I have been completely blown away by this book so far, and I'm certainly going to go back for multiple reads on this one. I may jump into some of the more technical literature behind it as well, because it is just that exciting. So Hawkins is a kind of rebel neuroscientist slash entrepreneur who has worked outside of academia, mostly at his own company called Numenta. His overriding research goal is to understand how the cerebral cortex works. That's the warped and folded outside part of the brain that's responsible for higher thinking, perception, language, and related functions. One big idea that pops up early on is that if you look at the cerebral cortex under a microscope, the cellular organization looks pretty much the same in every patch of tissue. And that's unlike other brain regions which show highly specialized cellular organizations. Hawkins then shows that this is not an optical illusion and that the cortex is like a quilt of repeating patterns of neuronal organization. Therefore, all regions of the cortex, from those that perceive touch sensations to those that allow us to read and write, and many others are operating using the exact same algorithms. And what do those algorithms do? Essentially, they allow our brains to create maps or charts, or what Hawkins calls reference frames, of our bodies and the world around us, as well as abstract concepts, so that we can understand them. Clearly, I'm simplifying these ideas, so definitely check out the book and or the YouTube channel of Hawkins' company, Numenta, where they go into more depth about the theory in a series of videos where they interview Hawkins. I'll link both below. All right, next up, number four is the quote. Humans are a strange lot. We have the power to analyze 
and explore the world around us. Yet we panic as soon as the evidence threatens to violate our expectations. Franz de Waal, are we smart enough to know how smart animals are? This quote reveals a paradox of the human condition. We are driven to know, to understand the world around us and within us. And we are by far the earthly species most capable of doing so. Yet one of the most robust findings in cognitive psychology and behavioral economics is the idea that we often shoot ourselves in the foot in our quest to know. That is, we engage in confirmation bias, where we try to force the facts to comply with our preconceived notions and vision of the world, and we fall for our other cognitive biases all the time. If we truly wanted to see reality as it was, we would not be so easily self-deceived. As true as that is, I think we sometimes make too much of our irrationality. It's correct to say that we very often cling to beliefs that can't withstand confrontation with the facts of reality, and that we jump to conclusion based on incomplete evidence. However, while we should be wary and skeptical of it, we should never underestimate nor denigrate our intuition. Our brains are constantly chewing on practical and intellectual problems behind the curtain of conscious awareness. They're trying to figure out the answers. Sometimes they get a hunch that just won't go away even in the face of evidence. Often that is because we have a purely emotional, irrational attachment to the idea, in which case we would be well advised to let go of it. But on some rare occasions, the hunch remains because there is some grain of truth in it that our brains do not want to discard entirely. That's why it's so important to closely analyze and explore our own beliefs and ideas. Often we will simply be cutting away the weeds and dead matter of our mind's garden. But in rare moments, we may find a beautiful new sprout of an important truth. In that case, we would be well advised to mindfully nurture it. And that comes from the book, Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? by Franz Duvall, who is a primatologist and animal behavioral scientist. And that book is beautiful, it's revolutionary. Um, anyone who's interested in um, cognition of animals and how animals think, um, how different or not so different humans are from other animals, you should definitely check that out and it will be linked below along with all the articles and uh, other books that I mentioned here. Okay, next up are my thoughts and uh, this week it's about local versus national news. All right, this week I just wanna say that if we have to choose, I think we should all support local journalism over national and international journalism. So if you only have limited time to consume news of what's going on, focus on the most proximal stuff first and leave the most distal stuff for last. Like all entertainment, news organizations are generally interested in gaining your attention. That's true regardless of whether you look at national or local news. But the difference is that typically you have a much larger influence on the events close to you and they have a much larger influence on you. Yet national news usually has much larger budgets and staffs than any local news organization could hope for. So national news organizations are better at stealing your attention with stories that are either sensationalized, biased, or simply don't concern you. In an article, I've written at length about why it's more important to pay attention to local news compared to national news. And I've linked that below, so check it out if you're interested. 
But I just wanted to end this by saying that national and international events are important and many will directly affect you. But there are many more local events that impact your life much more directly. Given that fact, which makes more sense to spend your time learning about? Okay, that does it. Um, as always, please don't hesitate to send me suggestions or feedback. I also really enjoy simply chatting over email. So if you want to reach out for any reason, you can either reply to these newsletter emails or email me at senseofmindshow at gmail.com. Also, as I mentioned in newsletter number five, you may have noticed a lack of new videos, and that's because we're revamping the way we do the regular videos. These newsletter videos are going to stay largely the same, but the others will be more in-depth, more digestible, more interesting and entertaining, and I will be more regular with content in 2022. That's my promise to you. Thank you so much for watching. And one last thing, if you got anything out of this, will you please uh, do me a favor by showing it to a friend or sending a link to someone, anyone who might find it interesting. As always, this channel is brought to you by the Diamond Mind Foundation. This video was written and produced by me, Andrew Cooper Sansone. Thanks again for watching. I'll catch you next time.